0: Uh, My name is Ben Robertson, and I'm the campus minister uh, with Reformed University Fellowship at the College of William & Mary, and um, I'm glad you're here this morning. If you're here for the first time or if you're visiting, coming to uh, the birthplace of America on our birthday, uh, we're glad that you're here and decided to come to church. Uh, If you're here with us for the first time or visiting, you're catching us in the middle of a series on the life of Abraham. Um, And for those of you who were not here last week, we saw that Abraham... Having received the promises of God, entered a famine as he entered into the promised land. He was starving to death, he and everyone with him. And so they went down to Egypt, and Abram, afraid for his life, handed over his wife, Sarah, to be married to Pharaoh, which was a bad idea. But God was gracious and rescued him. He sent plagues on Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians. They loaded Abraham and Sarah down with wealth and then sent them back towards the promised land. And that is where we pick up this week in chapter 13 of the book of Genesis. Chapter 13 of Genesis, we're going to read the entire chapter, starting at verse 1. I hear pages turning, so I'm I'm pausing. Give me a second. It's on page 9 in in the Bibles under your chairs. The word of the Lord. So Abram went up from Egypt. He and his wife and all that he had and Lot, who is his nephew, with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negeb, which is the southern part of the Promised Land, as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar to the Lord at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, For we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which were at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. It is good. It is true. It is inerrant. We pray that today, this morning, You would speak to us freshly by Your Spirit. Open our minds and our hearts. Wake us up to hear Your grace freshly and to live accordingly. We pray this in Your name. Amen. About a year ago, it was my father-in-law's birthday. Uh, my children call him Paw. And uh, he used to be an electrician. He still is an electrician, but he used to work as an electrician. He's done some contracting work and currently works as a handyman. He um, Recently, Dawn and I drove by her, the house that she grew up in, and she showed me the extension that he built himself off of it, the, the, the two-car garage with an upstairs playroom for the kids that he built himself um, after work, after coming home from electrical contract work. Uh, he's a very handy man. And uh, so last year, uh, for his birthday, we gave him a Dremel set. We all chipped in and got him a good one. And they got the, the Dremel and then all the pieces that go with it and this big thing. And he opened it up, we had all chipped in. I was there uh, on the birthday uh, evening. And he, he opens up the birthday present and he has the Dremel set and we're setting out and everyone's oohing and awing And I finally say, wow, um, what do you do with that? And the whole family, you know, growing up in this handy household, and, uh, they all look at me with equal parts mixture of pity and shame. Uh, oh, sweet Ben. Bless your heart. Uh, when will you learn the ways of custom tools? And um, they, they explained to me, you know, you can, you can cut bolts with it. You can do a lot, pretty much anything with a Dremel set, apparently. Cut off bolts, uh, it's good for woodworking so if you want to make a, a birdhouse or... Um, Do dentistry on a rhinoceros, I think, (laughs) as well. Uh, It can pretty much do it all. Um, Now, I will concede that there are a few differences between a Dremel set and the grace of God in Christ. Um, There are a couple of disanalogies there. But the question that I was asking is, what do you do with this gift? And Throughout Scripture, God's salvation to us is described as grace or as a gift. And when we receive that grace, the question is, okay, how do we respond having received this? Abram, in chapter 12, has, has received, as we saw last week, very much in spite of himself, tremendous grace from God, a gift. He was rescued. He was saved. Well, how does he respond? There are a lot of ways to appropriately respond to God's grace, to his gift. Um, but here we see three. Three ways that Abram responds. Now, I want to qualify this. As we continue the series on Abraham, and if you've read uh, Genesis before, you know that Abraham will blow it repeatedly uh, throughout his life. Uh, He hasn't learned all of his lessons just like the rest of us, but here are ways in which he responds here. The first way that he responds to grace is with repentance. It's repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is turning around and going back. Uh, My son, Benjamin, yesterday uh, was being a little bit grumpy, he's uh, something of a stinker, as we like to say. And he was acting up all morning. We, we had used our multifaceted approach of discipline, various ways of disciplining him. And at this point he was in a timeout and uh, the, we'd set the timer and he's sitting in the chair, very unhappy. And then finally the timer goes off and I, as I'm going over to turn off the timer, he's sitting in a chair across the room and I'm, I'm turning to, to hit the button. I said, okay, Benjamin, come here, I, I, come give me a hug. I wanna tell you how much I love you. And I hit the button and I, as soon as I hit the button, I turn around and he almost tackles me. Like he had run across the room, this grumpy kid sitting in the chair. He jumps out of the chair and sprints to me, wraps his arms around me smiling. That's repentance. Repentance is turning around and running back to your father. Who's there ready to grab you, to tell you how much he loves you. Abram has received this. The father has just shown him how much he loves him and rescuing him. At his very worst, in his own stupidity, you may not have seen it at first. Look back at verses one through four. I 'll show it to you. It says that he 's very rich, and he travels up from Egypt. It says in verse one. Verse three, he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. Abraham is carrying out a physical journey of repentance, out of rebellion and back into the promised land. It says he was back to where he was at the beginning. He builds an altar to the Lord. He sins, and he's rescued. And he runs back, not across the room, but across the promised land, back to his Father, back to his God. We often think of repentance as this one-time thing. You know, in Christian circles, you hear of like, I, I repented, and now I'm a Christian, and done repenting. <laughs> Did it. But no, we see here in this text, repentance is an ongoing thing throughout the course of your life. A continual turning back to God again and again and again. Or we think of repentance as the thing that I need to do to get God to come back to me. If I can repent enough, if I can sort of show that I'm going to try better from now on, and I'll call that repentance, then God will return his good grace to me. But no, repentance is a response. A response to God's initiating grace. Let me ask you, where do you need to repent? For some of you, it may be for the very first time. It may be that initial turnaround of, wait, look at what God has done. Look at what God has done in Christ, and I want that, and I want to come back. Back to what I was created to be and to do. Or, ongoingly, for those of you who have been following Christ for years... Where in your life do you need to run back? Even now, this afternoon. Maybe you need to apologize to your husband or to your wife. If your husband or wife apologizes this afternoon, don't say, that was just because of the sermon. Okay? (laughs) Receive it. Is there anger you need to let go of? A heart of unforgiveness? You have received forgiveness in Christ. A sin to confess to the Lord and to those affected by your sin. Where do you need to turn around? You've been rescued in Christ. Grace abounds. Come running back. Repent. The second way that he responds first, repentance, but second, with rest. With rest. Look at verses 5 through 9. Lot. Who went with Abraham also had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. God had been so gracious to Abraham and his people that they, were, they had too much wealth. They walked into Egypt starving and they return with so much wealth they can't even live in the same property. It's amazing. And then there was strife, verse 7. There was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. I'll skip to verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me. And between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you separate for yourself from me? If you take the left hand, then I will take the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. Abram is completely open handed. Remember again, last week, he reaches a problem in the promised land, and immediately he begins to question the promises of the promised land and leaves. And behaves in an incredibly foolish way that's detrimental to himself and to his wife. Sinful. He lies, he's deceitful, and does the unthinkable, because he thought he needed to take care of himself. And that was the only way that made sense. But now, having received a fresh taste of grace, he's able to let go. That's what I mean by rest. He doesn't have to snatch the promises for himself. Here's this moment he has so much wealth that he, his herdsmen and his nephew's herdsmen are fighting with each other. And he turns to his nephew and says, you get first dibs. Now, I want you to feel how magnanimous he's actually being. I mean, culturally speaking, Abraham was the patriarch. He was the one in charge. He had every right. It would have been completely legitimate for him to say, Lot, our herdsmen are fighting. See ya." Go somewhere else. You're out. Or he could say, Lot, our herdsmen are fighting. Listen, I'm going to take first choice. I'm going to pick the best land, and then you can sort of fit wherever we don't. But he does just the opposite. If you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. It's your choice, Lot. Amazing. Countercultural. Unheard of in those days for the father to act in that way. Not only that, but he calls him, the the commentators point out that his language isn't just generous, it's incredibly polite. It's over the top. He's saying, let there be no strife between you and me. And then he says, for we are kinsmen. That word kinsmen is the same word for brothers. Now, it has a broader range that, that can also mean, of course, kinsmen, relatives. But notice, he doesn't say, you're my nephew. He leaves rank out of it and puts the emphasis on their relationship we're kinsmen. Take it. God's been generous with me. I'll be generous with you. He can rest. He can let go because he knows that God is going to take care of him. Let's contrast that with Lot. Give verse 10. Verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley. And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners, against the Lord. There's a little linguistic clue in there in verse 10 where it says that Lot lifted up his eyes. And then the original hearers would have heard that very much like a camera angle being moved inside Lot's head and we get to see things from his perspective. So the following description, when it says Lot lifted up his eyes and looked, the author is inviting us to come and see things how Lot sees them. And it says he looks to the east, to the Jordan Valley. Actually, the, the geographical description is just outside the promised land. And he says he looked, And he saw that it was like the Garden of the Lord, like the Garden of Eden, the best place. It was well watered, so it was probably actually legitimately a nice piece of land. But it says that he looks and he sees that that's the place, that's the Garden of the Lord. What is the Garden of the Lord? It's where mankind was meant to dwell. It's the place of prosperity. It's the place of God's blessing. It's the place of identity and worth and value and purpose.
1: And then it goes on, it says,
0: it was the garden of the Lord, and it was like Egypt. Remember the original audience of the book of Genesis were the Israelites who had just been rescued from slavery in Egypt. It's a little hint from the author. Lot thinks that Egypt is good. Lot thinks that the garden of Eden is over there at Sodom. And then he gives a little bit, little hint that says, nudge, nudge, this was before God rained fire on that land. Bad decision. He looks and he sees the garden of the Lord over there, as one author put it. He wants the garden of the Lord, but without the Lord. He moves outside the promised land to where he thinks the garden of Eden is, the place of identity, value, purpose. And you can see the foreshadowing. Again, the original audience would be very familiar with Sodom and they would know this is not going to go well for Lot. I was recently listening to a radio show where a man was describing his career in computers years and years ago and he worked for a company and the head of the company came in one day and announced that they were moving in a completely new direction. They were going to begin working on this network and he said he described it as these computers that would connect to each other and people would converse back and forth and the, the worker thought, this is the worst idea I've ever heard. The only people that are going to be interested in this are the people who read Spider-Man comic books and when it says, you know, for more information on the Green Goblin, read Spidey issue 49 and then they go to the store and buy issue 49 and read the background information on the Green Goblin. No one's interested in this. Such a small, if you love Green Goblin and Spider-Man, you were in good company. But that's what, that's what, that was his description and so he said he went home that night. He thought about it for a couple of hours. And the next morning, he walked in with his two weeks notice that it was the easiest professional decision he ever made. Of course, as you're listening to this, um, he was working with some of the men who were the foundational uh, builders of the internet. <laughs> ever heard of it? Um, it changed global communications <laughs> forever. And this guy heard it, and, and he said that he, he handed in his two weeks notice and said, so long, suckers, enjoy your network, and walked away. That's a lot. So long, Abram. Enjoy your promised land. That'll work out well for you. Why? Why is he so foolish? The author wants us to know that he's being foolish. He wants to grab it for himself. He wants the garden of the Lord without the Lord. He wants to snatch it and grab it. But Abraham, at this moment, does not. In faith, he's ready to rest. Let me ask you, where do you grab for the garden? Where do you think? Over there. That's prosperity. That's purpose. That's my identity. That's my place of belonging. That's where I'll have success. It could be academia, for those of you involved in the academy. Academic success, school. It could be a relationship. The status of that relationship. It could be having perfect children that everyone admires. Your neighbors and, most importantly, your friends at church. Having the right job, the right income, the right paycheck, the social network that you belong to. Or maybe you don't know, where am I grabbing for the garden? Where am I grabbing for the garden? Here's a question that might help you. In what area of of your life do you find yourself incapable of resting? What's the thing that you churn on at night when you had that cup of coffee right before bed, which was a bad idea, and now you're just alone with your thoughts? What are you thinking about? What can't you let go? Are you so busy? We we all talk about how busy, busy, busy we are. Do you know that, of course, there are responsibilities that we have and we need to work hard in the time that God has given us to work, but I'm asking, can you let it go? And the constant busyness of I... Can you take a day off? Do you know to some degree we are in charge of our own schedules, most of us? We are capable of cutting things out. Here are a few questions or a few things for why we don't rest. What's behind us that we we just can't let things go? Uh, First is just good old-fashioned basic unbelief. We don't think that God can or will fulfill His promises. That God can accomplish good things for you, and that God does have your best interest in mind. And by that, I don't mean that God's going to make me rich and give me the, thing, the secret thing I really want, but that He is going to give me what I truly need, what I need most, Himself and holiness and grace. Basic unbelief. We don't trust God. Second, so we think too highly of ourselves. When I can't let something go, when I can't rest, having, of course, worked faithfully, done what we've been given that's responsible, but when I'm I'm churning on something, when I'm awake at night and worrying about a pastoral situation, say, at the college, at that point, I'm really thinking at some basic level, I am so important that I need to take care of this, and I'm going to worry about it because my worry is going to fix it, which is insane. It makes no sense talked to a friend a fellow campus minister who's at a prestigious school he gave a sermon on rest to his students and a couple of his students one in particular came up to him afterwards and said but i understand what you're saying about we ought to rest and be dependent on god but to whom much is given much is expected and i've just been given so many gifts with my intellect and my abilities that i really can't rest in the way that you're describing This was immediately after hearing a sermon on how God rested on the seventh day. And this kid was brilliant. Really, really bright. And you and I do the exact same thing. In all those little moments we're thinking, you know, it's I really need to keep my hand on the wheel. Can you take a day off? Really? Can you delegate to your coworkers and say, I'm on vacation, don't call me. Or is it, I'm just, I'm on vacation, just let me check the cell phone really quick. Let me check the email, it'll only take a second. Oh, that's me. I'm the worst. Well, I'm almost time for bed. Let me check my email really quick in case there's some pressing need that the great me needs to attend to. I don't think God can handle it. I think he needs me. And so does the world. The universe hangs in the balance. Or, unbelief or pride, thinking too highly of ourselves, we're just afraid of looking bad. I don't want to disappoint my boss. I don't want him to think poorly of me, and so I'm going to be the one that works the extra hours because I can't stand the thought of either not getting that promotion or him just thinking poorly of me. Abram in this passage is making a fool of himself culturally. Like the neighbors and the friends and the family looking on as the patriarch hands his ungrateful nephew the better piece of land, would just be, would say, you fool, what are you doing? But he doesn't care what they think because he knows he has the promises of God, so he lets it go. You feel guilty when you rest. Are you able to take the time off? Or do you recognize that you are a creature dependent upon an omnipotent God who has made you dependent upon himself and has not only allowed you and given you the gift of rest, but has even commanded it. Trust my promises. Take your hand off the plow and go to bed and rest peacefully. Abraham shows open-handed generosity to an ungrateful nephew who takes the better piece of land for himself. My hope is not in better land. My hope is not in the job title. My hope is not in my boss's affirmation. My hope is not in my neighbors' and church friends' opinions of my children and their perfection or imperfection. Though those things would be great, but not without the Lord. Garden of the Lord without the Lord is a disaster, it's a da- disaster of our own making. No thanks. I'll rest in him. Finally, the last way that Abram responds to grace is through renewal. After Lot leaves, verse 14, the Lord speaks again. The Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward, hearing giving him a new perspective. For all the land that you see, I will give you to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the land, the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and he built an altar to the Lord. Renewal. God, of course, initiates again at the beginning. He renews his promises. He gives him slightly new information. He uses a new metaphor from what he used in, verse, in chapter 12. He says the dust of the earth. He's more specific about the boundaries of the promised land, but he's basically just reiterating the promise that he already gave to Abram. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to populate the world with your offspring. I'm going to transform and redeem the broken creation through your offspring, Abram. I'm going to do it here. Let's go for a walk. Let's take a look. Look at my promises. Look at what I will do for you. And of course, Abraham responds again by building an altar to the Lord. An act of faith and worship of God. If you think about it, all of your relationships require this at some level, this renewal. It's not necessarily new information, but if you haven't talked to a good friend in a while and you've you've bumped into each other, hey, let's catch up, let's catch up, let's catch up, and a year later you finally manage to have coffee. There's that moment where you, you catch up. And sometimes there's new information in terms of what's happened in your life in the last year, but very often you're just sort of returning to that foundation of your friendship. And you're renewing that relationship. Or it could be with an old friend that you haven't seen in years and there's that moment where you see them Perhaps a roommate in college you haven't talked to in a decade. And in moments, you're back where you were. As if the relationship never had that separation. Those are beautiful friendships. And at that moment, it's renewed. Or even in marriage, where you are together constantly. Day in and day out, there are those moments where your, your vows, in a sense, are renewed. Where you express your love for one another and your commitment again. And you refresh and you restore. And the relationship has a new spring in its step. It's refreshed. It's renewed. Where do you need God to renew His promises for you? Where is your place of renewal, both of hearing His promises for you again freshly, and then responding appropriately to say, yes, you are my God. I will worship you. I will trust in you. The Scripture tells us that all of God's promises, the ones to Abraham and throughout the Old Testament, are yes in Christ, in the Gospel. The promises to Abraham are accomplished through Christ. He is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. And through him, all who have faith in Christ are the offspring of Abraham. The ones that God is populating the world with to bless the world, to transform the world, to make his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, in and through you, in your lives. All through Jesus. Where do you go to hear that promise again and to renew your faith? I hope that most obviously it's right here and right now, hearing God's Word, worshiping Him and being among these people, these believers who follow and trust Him. And of course, in the Lord's Supper, which we're about to take, we hear God's promises afresh and we renew. He renews His promises to us and we renew our covenant with Him and express faith and repentance and belief. Years ago, I got to witness another giving of a gift. Um, this is when I was about 11 or 12 years old. My older brother, David, was maybe 13 or 14, and he and my father had that relational tension that's just sort of inherent to being 13 and 14 with your father. I'm sure some of you remember that. I'm sure some of you are experiencing that on both ends right now. I remember that Christmas. My brother, David, who was a musician... Uh, there was this specific keyboard, kind of this nice one. And he had this little dinky little Casio with the pre-programmed stuff. But he wanted a—he was really getting much better at piano, and he wanted this nicer one that he could practice in his room with the headphones, so that he wasn't playing piano for the whole house all the time. And, um, I remember that that Christmas, my dad had gone out, and he had found this specifically. The, he knew exactly what David wanted down to the letter, you know, the Yamaha-K479, you know, that he had written it down and he had found specifically the, the very one he wanted and found a way to pay for this, the, the nicest one in the list of the ones that David was hoping for. And I can remember David sitting Indian-style under the Christmas tree. He saw the box and was pretty sure, but he didn't want really to get his hopes up too high. And he pulled, he pulled the paper back and he saw that K794. <laughs> you know, he knew this is exactly the very one my dad was sitting next to him. And David in that moment, all 14-year-old emotional angst and father-son tension was thrown out the window, and David did something I hadn't seen him do do in years. He ripped the paper back, he turned to my dad, and he gave him this bear hug. I thought my dad was going to fall over. I thought he was going to injure him. He just grabbed him. I could tell it meant the world to my dad. I'll never forget it. It was a beautiful moment. He received a gift. A generous gift from a loving father, and he saw the love there, and he knew instantly how to respond. Not like me with a Dremel set. What do you do with this? <laughs> David knew how to play the piano, and he knew how to say thanks. He grabbed my father, nearly strangled him. God has given us more than a keyboard, more than a Dremel set, more than rescue from Egypt and Pharaoh. He's given us the blood of His own Son. He's given us forgiveness. He's given us the gift of faith, of repentance. How will we respond? Return we to Him. Repent and rest in those promises. Renew even now as we take the Lord's Supper your faith in Him, your pledge to Him, your reception of His grace. Let me pray before we do just that in the Lord's Supper. Father God, we thank You that You are gracious and good. That Your grace abounds. Though our sin abounds, Your grace abounds that much more. Father, we pray that You would be with us even now as we come to the table of Your Son who gave His very life and blood so that we might live. He tasted death so that we could have life. Thank You. We grasp it by faith even now. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.